Support comes from HBO Documentary Films, presenting 38 at the Garden, directed by Frank Chi, which chronicles the extraordinary ascendance of point guard Jeremy Lin during his landmark 2012 season with the New York Knicks. Lin, an undrafted Harvard graduate, shocked fans, stunned his teammates, and galvanized Asians around the world when he scored 38 points at Madison Square Garden against the Los Angeles Lakers, solidifying Lin's hot streak and the Lin sanity craze. A decade later, Lin's stature as a groundbreaking cultural icon stands in stark relief to the recent hate crimes against the AAPI community. 38 at the Garden recognizes a pivotal moment in time for Lin and celebrates a phenomenon that was bigger than basketball for the world. For your Academy Award consideration, Best Documentary Short, and now streaming on HBO Max. Welcome to IndieWire's Filmmaker Toolkit podcast. I'm Jim Hempel, features writer for craft and special projects at IndieWire. Today I'm talking with Ryan White, the director of the delightful documentary Goodnight Oppie. Goodnight Oppie tells the story of Opportunity, a rover that was sent to Mars for a 90-day mission but ended up surviving for 15 years. The film follows Opportunity's groundbreaking journey on Mars and the bond between the robot and her human operators at NASA millions of miles away. White and his collaborators worked closely with NASA, getting access to hundreds of hours of archival footage, and they also partnered with visual effects powerhouse Industrial Light and Magic to recreate Mars from scratch. It's a fascinating, extremely entertaining movie, and I really enjoyed my conversation with Ryan about it. I hope you do as well. I guess I just want to start with the origins of the movie. I mean, how did you come to the subject matter? Was it something, you know, were you interested in space exploration as a topic? Were you looking for it, or did it sort of fall in your lap? What was the starting point? Yeah, unlike most projects that I do, this one is very easy to pinpoint the exact day that it came into my life because it was March 12th of 2020. I had dinner with Film 45, which is Pete Berg's company, um, and Amblin Entertainment, which is Steven Spielberg's company. And they pitched this idea to me um, of the robot that was supposed to live for 90 days but survived for 15 years. And they had gotten access to NASA's archive. NASA's obviously very protective of these things. And I think um, that those two brands and production companies have such a great track record. This film is obviously uh, very Spielbergian in its tone and in its subject matter um, that they had gotten NASA to say yes to hand over um, the archive. And I was a total space nut as a little kid. Like I I spent my entire childhood wanting to be an astronaut. I'm from Georgia where they make Cabbage Patch dolls. My Cabbage Patch doll was the astronaut Cabbage Patch doll. (laughs) It's what I wanted to be, but I also loved films. Like I've loved films since I was a little kid too, never thinking I could be a filmmaker. I don't know why I thought I could be an astronaut, but not a filmmaker. I think it's probably a byproduct of being from Georgia where there were no filmmakers. Um, but as I got older, um, I obviously chose one path and not the other um, and had always wanted to make a space film as I uh, became a documentary filmmaker. I had been pitched quite a few over the years, especially, you know, once I'd made three or four or five films and people were coming to me to make docs, I'd been pitched quite a few, uh, but I had never found a story that I felt like was character-based enough that fit in my type of interest in documentary filmmaking until this dinner on March 12th, 2020. And I was with my producing partner, who's my best friend since we were little kids. So she knows this passion of mine to do space. And we looked at each other right away. We were like, 
what's better? What's a, what's a better log line than this robot that, that survived 15 years when she, she was only supposed to live a few months? So that was the genesis. And then, of course, March 13th, 2020, the next day is when we got emails telling us not to leave our home. So that's that's how the project began. All right. So you decide that day or that dinner, you know, this is something you want to do. You find out the next day that you can't go anywhere, you can't go into work, you can't do anything. So what are your initial conversations with your producing partner about? I mean, do you do you assume the movie is dead? Do you start thinking how you're about how you're going to move forward on it? I mean, what what is that first couple of weeks like of the pandemic? Well, remember we those first couple of weeks was like it'll be done next week. It'll right. be done next week. So I don't think there was any sort of, wow, when when will we ever begin this film? But we're also always making multiple films at once. And we're in various stages of all those films. So more of the focus is, was on like, wow, how do we edit this film? If our, our another film, if our editors can't come in, what do we do with our Verite productions if we can't be traveling to foreign countries where we're making a film or even to other states where we were making another film? And so this one was actually kind of perfect at that time, even in that time of unknowing how long that would last, because we could get started on it. We were very early, so we could start the research. We always do a pre-interviewing process for almost all of our films. And so the first stage was pre-interviewing. It was almost four dozen people the human beings uh, who played a part in the robots' lives, interviewing them about the story. And I don't do pre-interviews myself. Jess and my other producer, Grace Othout, do them um, because I don't like to, exactly like you said at the beginning of this podcast, you don't like to make someone feel like they're telling you the story twice, especially when they're on camera. Um, so that leaves the rawness there for the on-camera moment. And you're also pre-interviewing more people that will end up in your film. So she started doing those and they started sending the Zoom recordings to me. So it's like the very early Zoom days. And every email came with like a, a, a note saying, like, holy shit, this man or this woman is amazing. Like they're so emotional about the robot and they related to her in this way. And they had a, a picture of her up on their refrigerator next to their kids. And every human being had a story like that. And I think that's when I knew we had something special was the idea that all of these humans um, had something really that really bonded them to the robot. Because what really interested in me, of course, like a robot's journey on Mars is awesome. Um, but what really thematically interested in me was this idea of the connection and the bond between human and non-human. Um, E.T. was my favorite film growing up. I felt like this film was very similar in tone and trajectory. But the other film that I watched right away when I took this project, which is a film that I've seen many times before, but had in a while, is Her. Um, you know, it's a film not about not about something like this, but it's it's um, very razor focused on the connection between human and machine or non-human or AI or whatever Scarlett Johansson is in that film. Um, and so we were able to do those pre-interviews and start uh, and start writing a screenplay, which I've never done for any of my documentaries. But um, from the very first dinner that we had, uh, my vision was can we take the audience to Mars in a way they've never been taken? Can we use the photography of these robots and the telemetry that that NASA has to create a photo real Mars and um, 
Amblin had said, well, our best friends are industrial light magic. If anyone can do it, it's them. Uh, and so we started nurturing all these various parts of the film that we weren't going to shoot yet, but we, get, we got the ball rolling um, and started writing a screenplay for what the film would be and what those visual effects would be. And that could all be done safely within our, our, our kitchens or bedrooms or living rooms, wherever we were captured at the time. Why did you, on this movie, think it was important to write a screenplay if you hadn't done it on the other ones? What was different about this? Because on the other ones, like my personality, I'm, I'm perfectly suited to be a documentary filmmaker. I hate logistics. I hate planning. This is why I have producers that are very talented in that. I like run and gun filmmaking. I like winging it. And I like finding story in the edit room. My editors are my biggest creative collaborators, I think they are for for most documentary filmmakers. I think documentary documentary editors de deserve a lot more credit for the authorship of the final the final product. And so normally that's how I operate. I'm you know running off to some foreign country and shooting a ton, and my producers are keeping me alive. And then I come back and I drop the footage in my edit room, and I say, I don't know, there's a hundred hours of footage. Let's let's get going. Uh, and I do love that. Uh, this one didn't have that luxury because of industrial light and magic. It was going to take them a long time, like over a year, uh, to be to make these visual effects. And so they said, "We need your vision now. We need to know what scenes we have to. We have to create the 3D models of the robots. We have to create the terrain of Mars. We need to start this process now." You know, a, a huge scene in our film is the landing scene of the spacecraft. That one probably took the longest because that's not. That's not some imaginary spacecraft created by ILM. That is the spacecraft that NASA launched like to the screw. So that all had to be modeled out very, very early to be prepared to, to send into animatic stage. So they said, well, what do you want? Like, wh what scenes do you want? And so we used those pre-interviews that we had done. You know, once you have almost 50 interviews, it's very convenient because you see the same stories, you know, um, you see the same stories bubbling up from people of, you know, spirit went missing on Sol 18 and wouldn't call home and opportunities first time trying to go downhill into a crater when she got stuck in quicksand or when they first encountered dust devils. You start seeing the same stories bubble up over and over again. And we began to write those as scenes. And the other thing that we had in the safety of COVID was NASA showed me what they call the analyst notebook, which is a daily journal for the rovers we we be, we began to call it the rover diaries and it's a present tense in the moment prose version of what is happening that day um, and it not only includes includes the prose journal entry it also includes all the data from the day so the robots measurements what the weather was, what the level of tau in the air is, meaning the level of dust. So they were these perfect storytelling devices that, you know, like no matter how hard I tried an interview to take an interviewee down a present day path, it's very, very hard. It sounds easy, but almost inevitably, if you're looking back on something, you slip into past tense. And these diaries were written in present tense. So I thought it could be a huge, uh, a huge storytelling device for us. And eventually, that's what Angela Bassett reads in our film, playing um, the voice of NASA. 
But it also allowed me to script those out. So I was cutting, pasting those into the script with what I thought the the CGI scenes would be. And so there definitely was the old school or my my more traditional way of finding the edit in the editing room with the archival that NASA had given us because that took months to watch. But when it came to the story of opportunity on Mars and Spirit, what they were actually doing, that had to be scripted because of time. Well, and when you are getting the same story from a number of the interviewees, you know, something that struck me about the movie was every single person in there um, from NASA or JPL or wherever, I mean, they were all so in love with their job and so committed to it, it seemed like, and it had such interesting personalities. And I would think you would almost have this embarrassment of riches in terms of the number of people you could get to tell these stories and everything. So how did you, what kind of factors determine how you decide who you're going to focus on as far as interview subjects on camera, who you're going to choose to tell certain stories? Well, there were a bunch of factors that went into it. And one of them was COVID because it was very difficult to get NASA to get permission to film with any of their scientists or engineers for a lot of this. So we did it staggered out. You couldn't do uh, huge days. It took a ton of uh, you know, jumping through hoops just to get one interview. And then our producers had to start jumping through more hoops. So uh, they were staggered out in a lot of ways, which was great for the storytelling. So we began, uh, you know, with some of the people we knew were there for the entire time um, to try to, we had, we had a, our first day of interviews was with three people. So two of them were, were, were with what I call the lifers. So they were there at the beginning. They're still working at NASA. So it's like, well, that's a great way to get someone who can tell us the full story. And then we threw in a younger person who we knew had a great emotional bond to the robot to get something a little bit different. And then you would wait for months till you got more for permissions to film with NASA and be like, okay, we have these three people telling this story. Like they covered this really well. Where do we go next? Uh, so it was a lot about that. Like how how do we edit the story in a way where we're getting enough story into the edit room to keep the ball rolling, to keep everything moving? Um, another huge factor. I mean, the reality is we could never. I have eleven people in my film interviewed. You know, there's probably hundreds in the archival. There are thousands of people that worked on these robots. I can never do that team justice. And there's so many people and very important people who aren't interviewed in the film. But you know, we tried very carefully to show those people in archival scenes. Uh, but it was also very important for us. It was rare as a as a documentary filmmaker to have a subject matter that was so accessible. Most of my films, my nieces and nephews can't watch, right? Um, and here was one where I would have loved this film as a, as a little kid. I had the opportunity to make a film that was not dumbed down for kids, but that was an adventure story that hopefully families could could watch together. And so we were very conscious of making sure if you know a little girl out there was watching this film that she would see someone who might remind her of her um and say to herself maybe i can go into this field you know and so it was being very conscious of having a very wide array of people because you know this isn't even just americans who work on these missions it's people worldwide so we have a woman from rural india who ends who's now one of the rover drivers we have a man from ghana but we also have people of various generations americans of all different backgrounds races uh and you know obviously the the key point was that each of these persons played some sort of key role and told the story, was a good storyteller. Uh, 
And I have found that as the embarrassment of riches. Like I would have thought scientists and engineers would be the worst storytellers. I wouldn't have thought that would be their strong suit. But these people were incredible at storytelling. I think part of that might have had to do with I began this film a year after she died. And they have to move on very fast to the next mission. Even the even some of the older uh, engineers on this only got to work on this mission for the first few months, and then she outsurpassed the the ninety day uh, warranty, and then they were moved to other missions. And it was just everyone thought, well, she'll die soon anyway. We need them working on these new things. So I think in that way, it was them getting to revisit this story, this this being that they love so much, and it was almost like cathartic. I've heard that a lot, like at the end of interviews, you know, someone would kind of joke like, well, that felt like a therapy session as they wiped away tears. And so it was an embarrassment of riches in that way, um, you know, and I, I feel like there are, you know, there are 11 people in my film. You could probably swap out those 11 for another 11 and tell just as powerful emotional story. That's how, that's how huge these missions are. You're writing the script, you're doing the pre-interviews. What was the first thing you actually shot for the movie? The first thing I shot is is very ironic because it's the ending of my film, not to ruin the ending of my film, but I think most people know where it's going. Um, so after Opportunity died uh, and I began making the film, her life was over, but her what many people call her granddaughter or her little sister, was about to launch to Mars. So in July of 2020, so the height of COVID, we got NASA to give us, uh, we begged NASA um, to allow us to go to Kennedy Space Center and shoot the launch of Perseverance. because we had already done these pre-interviews and we knew people had moved on to Perseverance and they were describing her as their next baby. And we knew that this was like a, a film about family, not only the f- families of humans, but these family of robots and the, the legacy that they leave for one another. So we said to NASA, we can't miss this. It's like it's the end of our film. If we miss this, we have no way to end the film. And so um, under their very strict protocols, they allowed me to go and they allowed um, one of my regular camera people, John Benham, to go with me. So just two of us. Um, And luckily, I shoot myself as well. And John and I covered as much of the launch as we could. Uh, But yeah, we got to be there. It was my first space launch. So that little kid in me was going nuts. I think it's something when I now that I've been to one that I tell everyone like if you can go to one of those in your lifetime it's such an incredible feeling that you feel literally throughout your body as they take off they were like it was virtually empty because they did they couldn't allow press on campus like they normally do even the people that I was working with they couldn't come unless they played a vital role so I felt horribly guilty getting to be there while some of the people who who had built Perseverance weren't allowed to come. Um, But it was an incredible way to start the film. Although it was an ending, it was such a huge moment. And to see the emotion um, in the people who had worked on Perseverance as they watched her go up was so visceral that it was kind of the perfect sort of kickstart to the film in that way. And then we came home from Florida and began began the story of Oppie. And you mentioned the archival footage. What kind of stuff did NASA give you? I mean, and what were your kind of initial conversations with them like about using it? Well, I've always heard those those sort of documentary folklore stories 
about that incredible archive that you find, like Grizzly Man or Wild Wild Country, or these docs capturing the freedmen, these docs where it's like, I happen upon this amazing archive of film. I had never found one of those um, in my career. And it's not really my type of documentary filmmaking anyway. Like I said, my interest is more like going out there into the world and running, gunning it. Um, you know, and I have plenty of friends who are incredible archive doc filmmakers. But this was new for me. I'd made a few archival films, but they were mostly um, they were mostly historical. And so they weren't a treasure trove of footage. And that's really what this was. Even though we knew it was coming, it's not like we happened to stumble upon it. When NASA handed it over, it was that documentary folklore feeling of here's these massive box of tapes. We don't know what's on it. Some might be her mission. Some might be completely else. Like, have at it. And so uh, my producing partner, Jess, she organized a pretty big team, bigger than we've ever had, to start watching down this footage minute by minute. Um, it was almost a 1,000 hours, I believe. Um, none of it was organized in a way that was conducive for 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 our editors. And that was a huge task of the, over that summer of 2020 was like, you know, making Facebooks of people and telling a college intern, if you see these people, mark it. Or if you see a moment where any song is playing in Mission Control, mark it. Um, and so if you see an argument, mark it. Because a lot of this footage is just boring. You know, a woman sitting at a computer for six hours, nothing happens, and, and someone has a camera on her. But it was really fun in that, in that sense that I would think you have making Wild Wild Country is that when you find that moment that's so special, that's a needle in a haystack, it, that was the real discovery process for me. That was my normal finding the story in the edit room moments, was finding those in the archival tapes. So when you say there's stuff in there that's like a, a woman sitting at a desk for six hours, I mean, does NASA just record everything or... Well, it tapered off. You know, they they thought this mission was going to last 90 days, and that's not an inconceivable shoot, right? Like a 90-day shoot of being embedded in something and having a few camera people there, that's that's doable. And so the 90 days, the first 90, they covered the hell out of. And the majority of my film is the first 90 days. Uh, you know, the landing, they obviously covered the hell out of. Uh, once they surpass 90 days and it's like, well, what do we do now? Like, let's go on these adventures. But some of these adventures were going to be literally a year long, three years long to move from one interesting place to another. It would take the robot three years to get there. So there's a lot of downtime in between. So, you know, NASA's probably not surprisingly very smart. They're very savvy. They would bring I found that those those big moments that I was finding bubbled up in the in the pre-interviews we would eventually find when we looked hard enough that there were cameras in the rooms for most of those and so I think NASA knew at like critical moments in the mission when something was particularly exciting and exciting can be good exciting or exciting can be crisis exciting they would try to get a camera person in there and it was it's all, almost all of it is one person named John Beck Hoffman who was essentially I mean he's a filmmaker but he was also essentially an employee of JPL at some point he had like a badge that that allowed him access to get there so you know he shot so much of what's in my film and he was there uh, he was there to cover the at least the important moments. And then, of course, as the rovers reach the end of their lives, there's a lot more cameras in there because NASA also understands 
their missions aren't just these scientific discoveries or planetary planetary expeditions. It's also to show the public what our tax dollars are paying for. And I think one of the strongest ways to do that, they understand, is storytelling. And so the more they document that, the more stories are told out of what they're doing, which is proof that what they're doing matters. Um, and so they know they're they're savvy enough to know to cover the key moments. And we were we were lucky that they were savvy enough. We talked a little bit about the visual effects in ILM. And on the one hand, you know, that's obviously an incredible opportunity to work with ILM. On the other hand, I would think on some level, it's kind of daunting as an independent filmmaker, a documentarian. I mean, you've probably never had anywhere close to that level of, uh, you know, visual effects scale on one of your movies. So what was the learning curve like in terms of working with them and figuring out how to communicate what you needed? Huge learning curve, but luckily I was working with the best in the business and they were trusting me with this story. Uh, when I say they, I mostly mean Amplin. Like they, they trusted that I could pull this off. They liked my previous films and the type of filmmaking that I did. And they, they gave me the confidence that I would be able to extrapolate that to a film that was you know, similar in its storytelling, but much bigger in scope and degree of difficulty, at least when it comes to new elements that hadn't been in my film. But I am one of my biggest faults in life. It always has been since I was a little kid is I hate being bad at things and I hate being bad at things in front of other people. I'm such a perfectionist and I'm very confident in my documentary filmmaking now, but I have no idea how to direct uh, visual effects when I began this film. And it's, but what I've also learned from from that being my biggest fault is like I can teach myself how to do things and I'm I'm I was a nerdy student I can learn pretty fast and so uh, we hired a young woman named Dominique Hessard Owens who worked with me very closely on the on the visual effects she had never done this either but I thought she was a really talented young documentary filmmaker and she shot herself we began buying like. Uh, like books on how to how to storyboard um, these types of films, and I kind of taught myself on the side. Even while I was having these conversations, I was just you know having as many zooms with directors I know who have done this before. Uh, but even in my initial conversations with Industrial Light and Magic, they were saying like we do this all the time. You think you know most of the days now when someone makes like a Marvel film, they have very little experience in, the, in that type of scope, and we. We know how to teach you how to do this. And like anything that I've been bad at in my life and been afraid to do it in front of other people, like these skill sets, I reached a point and pretty early on where I was like, I've got this. I know what I'm doing. I can direct this. Uh, and this was very similar. It was incredibly fun creatively. Um, it felt like... Like not only was the subject matter something I loved so much as a child, but it felt like getting to make the types of films that I loved as a child, like really getting to use my imagination in a way that I don't a lot as a documentary filmmaker. But it was also always um, key to the visual effects that they were grounded in reality and authenticity. And we were lucky because we had hundreds of thousands of photos that these robots took. We had photos, thousands, hundreds of thousands from the orbiters that float above them. So we could pretty much show industrial light magic what Mars looked like in these moments that we were going to show in our film. We had the analyst notebook from NASA. We could say, this was the weather on the day. This was the level of tau in the air. So this is what the sunlight would have looked like. And I know we drove industrial light magic insane at times. Um, and so many people on there worked at this film. But I also know that they found it really fun because they don't often get to work in the documentary space. And so to say to them, like, 
let's make something incredible, but we can't use our imaginations because I'm a documentary filmmaker. We have to use the data and photographs that we have. Can you make this look photo real? Because if you can't, this is probably a bad idea to have this in a film. I can't end up making a film that looks like a cartoon in the end. They were willing, uh, they were willing to take that leap. They kept saying, like, we've never done it before. When we normally make Mars, it's based on an actor in a desert and we build Mars around him or her. Um, but we are capable of doing this, so do it with us. And so we kind of jumped off that cliff together. You know, for a year, you're not seeing what that final product is going to look like. It goes through so many iterations, beginning, you know, with my storyboard artist, Josh Shepard, and it's just black and white pencil sketches. It was like win, lose, or draw on Zoom, where he would just scroll things, and I'd say, no, let's move the camera over here, and he would scroll something else, and I'd be like, well, what if we did an aerial, and then we cut to a close-up from below the crater down here. Um, you know, for many, many, many months, it's just those pencil sketches in your film, and then to finally reach those end stages where, um, you know, I always trusted ILM, but to watch them over deliver on how real it looked was like, that's like, that's like a kid in a candy store. The whole other component that really I feel like sets the movie apart is the sound design. You've got an incredible sound designer here with Mark Mangini, who obviously, you know, Academy Award winners, you know, Dune, Blade Runner 2049, things like that. Mad Max Fury Road. Mad Max Fury Road. A very sandy film. Yeah. 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 So why was it important to you to have somebody at that level working on this? And what were the kind of guiding principles for the sound? I mean, it was that same, it was that same sort of principle. Like, I've never done this, but if I can have someone that I trust who is a teacher who's saying, like, like, let's do this together. And and someone like everyone felt like you're the director, tell us your vision and we can deliver on it because we're geniuses, but we need to know your vision. And Mark, from the very beginning of my first conversations, was very, as much of a legend as he is in his field, I felt like he was looking to me and saying, like, tell me what you want to create and I can do it. Um, and so it felt like even though he's a legend, he wasn't going to take over the film and make it into something that it's not. And now I know Mark very well, and I know none of his films are like that. They're all steeped in like major reality, even Dune and Mad Max Fury Road. Those aren't like synthetic sounds. Those are real sounds. Margaret's, uh, Mark is like an ethnographer. You know, he's like an anthropologist out there recording everything so he can use real sounds. And that's how he approached this. So... He, he went out to Jet Propulsion Laboratory. We've got all these pictures of him in like this little hazmat spacesuit because it was COVID and because you can't taint the robots. And he mic'd up uh, Opportunity and Spirit's test beds, which are their replicas that live on Earth. And JPL rebooted them for him. And he was able to drive them through what's called the Mars Yard, which is like a simulated Martian terrain, and get all those real sounds that the robot would make, that their you know neck made, that their cameras made, that their wheels, their computers. So he was able to, to use all of those as the building blocks for, for natural sounds, um, diegetic sounds that Opportunity um, would be making. And then we were very lucky because Perseverance landed before we began designing, doing the sound design for the film, and she has microphones. And so she, for the first time, was sending back the sounds of real Mars. So we had Martian wind, we had Martian room tone, we had Martian dust storms. Uh, and so Mark was able to layer that in, in a way where Opportunity and Spirit's worlds were the real 
ambient of Mars, you know, and I don't I don't know if an audience would know that necessarily while watching the film, but I love that we got to stick to that level of um, that bar of 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 truth and accuracy that we have in documentary and mark savored that he loved that stuff so it's it's really fun even if an audience doesn't know like oh that was like a real sound of opportunity going up a hill and in, in the mars yard um that, that that that's what the final the final sound design actually is yeah i think whether or not people know it consciously there's just something about the texture of the sound that draws you in and kind of immerses you in this world it's also sound isn't that exciting on mars uh you know and it was mark and i had a conversation at some point and it's like do we amp this up for the audience so that it's not boring or do we stick to the sound? And, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a difficult decision. And we, of course we like amp up some things just because the, the, because of the atmosphere on Mars, everything is so quiet and tinny. Um, but we decided to lean into that. You know, there's not a lot happening on Mars minus dust storms and, and, uh, dust devils that come by every once in a while. There's no flowing water. There's no rain. So, it's not a lot to work with. And um, luckily, we had uh, a lot of those building blocks of Opportunity's body. We had music, obviously. We had the wake-up songs uh, that we were able to label, uh, layer enough together uh, to hopefully keep those, those scenes alive. Well, since you brought up the wake-up songs and the music, maybe we'll wrap up talking about that. I know you've got your composer, Blake Neely, here. You've worked together before. So at this point... In your collaboration, how early do you bring him on and what kinds of conversations do you have and, and uh, how did the score evolve? I bring Blake on incredibly early, as, as early as, Bla as Blake is willing to come on. Um, you know, Blake does mosted, mostly scripted stuff. Uh, he just did his first other documentary besides my own, and I feel like he cheated on me a little bit, but luckily I love the filmmaker. But he's mostly doing big scripted stuff, and I'm his little pet projects on the side that he doesn't let anyone else touch. He loves working on them, and they're so... They're so um, important to him, and he works his ass off on my documentaries. Even if it's a short doc, he works his ass off on it. And this was one, I mean, Blake, that dinner on March 12, 2020, we called Blake right away, and we were like, get over here. I didn't tell him what the project was, and he sat down, and he's worked with these companies before, and I was like, tell Blake what the project is about, and they pitched it to him, and Blake was like, when can I start composing? Because Blake is just as big a space nerd as I am, and I knew that. He's been one of my very good friends for over a decade. Um, and so he began writing right away on this one, and some of that stuff is in the final film. A lot of it isn't, um, but I love that. He'll send me his first ideas that he's writing in the middle of the night and I'll listen to it and we'll, you know, have a three hour conversation about it and say what feels right, what doesn't feel right. And then I also love to listen to that stuff while I'm shooting or while I'm flying somewhere to shoot. It helps me. Um, I would imagine it's like an actor getting in a zone or something before they, they go out and, and perform. Like, I feel like that type of stuff as I'm nailing the, the music, the score of the film helps me kind of get in that, that sort of, uh, performance mode. Uh, and so he started very early. And then obviously Mark um, Mark and Blake had to work together incredibly closely because once Mark um, came on board and showed us how incredible his work could be, that allowed Blake and I a lot of freedom. Like we didn't have to lean in so much. We were thinking the score would be more, a little more futuristic, a little more mechanical. And then once we realized, well, Mark's real sounds are doing that already, we can we have the freedom to make something more cinematic uh, 
And so it was a very long process of working with Blake. It's the biggest orchestra we've ever recorded with. I think it was like 60 something musicians in the end. So we wanted to give this story that that type of treatment that any that any scripted film would get with a with a big beautiful score and luckily Blake is willing to do that with me for you know two years of writing music and just trying out experimenting throwing things away and then bringing them back months later uh, it's one of my favorite absolute favorite parts of filmmaking is getting to work with with Blake and composing music. Well, it must have been fun too working with the uh, wake up songs and getting to use you know pop songs SOS and Rome and all those. I feel like they add kind of a fun element to the movie. Were were those choices purely dictated by what was actually playing on the day or did you kind of have a little more creative license there? Everything except Rome. So you mentioned Rome by the B-52s, and I'm a Georgia boy, and the B-52s are from Georgia, and I love the B-52s. So uh, if, if you've seen my film, Rome opens the film with sort of a scene where you meet Oppie on Mars, and we flash back to when she isn't even uh, a wire yet. Uh, that was one where we had total creative license it was the hardest one to choose we 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 auditioned so many songs in that scene and rome just captured that energy in a way that was sort of campy and fun but has has lyrics that are relevant um, that I just really loved. I mean, Rome was a wake-up song, but it wasn't a wake-up song on a day that mattered for my film. Um, the rest, for the most part, came from um, moments in Opportunity's life that mattered to the story. So I won't name them. I think there are seven songs in my film. There's a couple songs in there that are not my favorite songs, even though they are huge hits. And it was, you know, we had to give up on some of like the best songs from music history. I mean, of course, we have, of course, Life on Mars by Bowie was a wake up song at some point. They had thousands. Uh, and it was, I love that song and I'm a huge Bowie fan. And it was in a scene at some point, but it fell by the wayside at some point because it didn't where it was used didn't matter to the story. And so there's a couple songs that are just used in key moments during a different crisis, uh, crisis in the robots' lives uh, that, you know, I was like, really? Or if we can only use seven songs, is this going to be one of them? But, but story-wise, it played um, such an important role. And then, of course, our final song is Billie Holiday's I'll Be Seeing You. Um, and that was the final wake-up song um, chosen to essentially not to, to not wake up opportunity to acknowledge that she was never going to wake up again. Um, and that song, I couldn't have asked for a better choice for something to end the film. Even, even sonically, that song's recording is so much older than all the other, you know, big pop hits from the last 30, 40 years in my film. It's like crackling on a record and it's such a somber moment in the film and Angela Bassett is reading the fo the final um, Rover diary. Um, you know, the final line is good night opportunity. Well done. And when you get to hear that in Angela Bassett's voice paired with Billie Holiday's um, gorgeous lyrics was, you know, something I could have never written into that script. Like so lucky that that's the way that that unfolded and that that was the final song chosen. Well, since you brought up Angela Bassett, I guess I have to ask about her too, because I love her, the use of her voice and storytelling in the movie. Um, how did you choose her and 
Uh, talk a little bit about that collaboration. Well, I knew I had that analyst notebook that I could use as a storytelling device in present tense to keep the suspension and the drama of all of these moments um, to infuse the film with that feeling like these things are happening, not that we're looking back on them. But then the question became, how do you how do you show that? How do you read that? Uh, how do you do you have your audience reading journal diaries? Uh, and so, I knew from very early on when I started putting those into the script that I wanted an amazing actor to read them. And I often see Angela um, defined or characterized in my film as the narrator. And I want to say like, no, 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 Angela's not a narrator. This isn't, um, you know, she's not like telling, she's not telling you what's happening and she's not telling you history. It's not like Morgan Freeman and the March of the Penguins, which is incredible. Like, Angela's playing a part, and that part is the voice of NASA. She's playing collectively the voice of all these people who put pen to paper at the end of every day and put their hearts onto that page about how afraid they were, about how excited they were. And from the very beginning, I had Angela's voice in my head. I never in a million years thought Angela would say yes, but that was the voice in my head for years while we were editing the film. The voice in my edit was James Robinson, who was my production assistant, who has this wonderful voice. And so for years, James was reading those for us and he was great. Um, and so no offense to James, he was wonderful. But once Angela finally read it, it like all of the emotion of the film sort of congealed she is the she is that interweaving thread throughout this entire chronicle of these robots lives and she's so maternal i mean obviously she's playing the the, the mother figure in uh in black panther um which is coming out soon i believe um and that sort of emotion and that wise tone to her voice, but especially the maternal nature. And she felt that like when you're in the room with her, I mean, Angela's, this isn't someone coming in and just saying like, show me the script, I'll read it. It's like her wanting to interact with the director. Tell me, tell me what you want me feeling as I read this. And it was incredible getting to work with her in that regard. And again, feeling like I'm working with a legend, but a legend that's looking to me saying like, direct me, you've got this. Tell me what you want and I'll deliver. And so another incredible creative collaboration. I'm so thankful that she said yes. I know it's probably not, you know, I know she's incredibly busy. I know she has projects that are probably far more star-studded than this one will ever be, but she believed in the importance of the story and it took the film uh, to a whole nother level for sure once we were able to layer in her voice. And Mark Mangini recorded her in a way that's different to anyone else in my film. So Angela recorded her narration with microphones all around her. Um, and so when you hear her in a theater, at least, uh, she's everywhere. Uh, and so it has this tone that's different than the interviewees and in that you can hear behind behind you, you can hear beside you, you can hear her in front of you. So hopefully she feels like that sort of warm blanket for the audience while you're watching this adventure. Well, you uh, you said, you know, that you tend to work on a lot of things at once. So I guess my last question is, uh, what are you working on now? Or can you talk about it? Yeah, I have to steal. I can talk about it. I have to steal my friend's joke from last week because he said, I'm working on another documentary about a woman running across the sand. And it's about uh, Pamela Anderson. So I'm making a documentary that'll come out early next year about Pamela with Pamela. Um, and about her incredible life story and something that 
I think and hope will really surprise people. I know it surprised me a lot uh, making this film. Um, sounds as completely on the other side of the spectrum as you can be from Goodnight Oppie, but I really feel like these are not that different. It's a story of another woman. Usually my films are about women on this incredible trajectory up against the odds. How do they get from one end of their life to another? Um, and that's the type of of journeys that I love to be a part of, whether it's a journey on a planet or whether it's a journey through life like Pamela's was. That's the type of stories I like to be a part of. Uh, great. Well, I can't wait to see it. Uh, thanks so much for coming and talking with me, Ryan. This has been great. This is great. Thank you. Thank you.